0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. As you make your sacrifices to encourage kingdom throughout the world, would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. If you are visiting, uh, we are in the midst of a series called Relentless Pursuit, which is through the Gospel of Mark, and we've made a turn last week. In the first eight chapters, Jesus is identifying who he is, and he's establishing himself through miracles, through his teaching, so that everyone knows who's talking. And then in chapter nine, he made a turn toward not only his identity, but what he came for, which was to go to the cross, to give his life as a sacrifice. And we began that last week, and we continue even today uh, as we look at Mark chapter 10, which is a powerful uh, text because Jesus establishes our value, a value that isn't often seen in the eyes of the world. And we're going to have three snapshots this morning of those who responded to Jesus and how he responded to them. Let's look at the very first one. We're going to be talking about the kingdom We're going to be talking about what it means to be entering into his kingdom and who he invites. So what I want to be able to identify is what we can learn from this chapter are three things. The first is this. It isn't what we don't have that matters in the kingdom. It isn't what we do not have. And there's an example that comes in verses 13 through 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, he put his hands on them, and he blessed them. This is a hard passage of scripture for us in America, because we value our children. Uh, you know, I, sometimes maybe we revolve our lives around them. We work so hard to give our children what we did not have. We have to be careful, though, that we give them what we did have, too. Occasional no. It's okay to work for something. You don't have to have everything right now. But in our culture, in America, we're very much around family, which is great, and focused on our kids and wanting our kids to develop and grow socially and and educationally. Let's just make sure we also focus on growing them spiritually. That's part of our obligation, too. But back in Jesus' day, it was a different culture children, because of the mortality rate of children, that it, children, a, a, a largest percentage of children did not live past the age of six because of childhood diseases and, and everything related to that, that they did not grow as attached to their children in their younger ages as we do in ours. So we see this passage and we think, but kids want to come to Jesus and be loved on and the disciples are stopping them. That's weird. It wasn't back then because, because children weren't considered a part of society until they had developed into their early preteens This would not have been uncommon for the disciples to say, Jesus has more important things to do than to hang out with kids. So they stopped the kids from coming, and Jesus saw this, and he became indignant. He he looked at them, and he said, stop. These children come to me because they need me. They come with no expectation except to be loved and blessed. And the parents would say, go to him. Let him bless you. The blessing was a part of the culture. Uh, The father, you you see throughout the Old Testament, a father would lay his hands On his children, he would give them a blessing, asking God to give them a place, to give them hope, to give them spiritual life. So in this moment, the disciples are like, Jesus is too busy for kids. And he's like, No. He said, Because unless you come to me like these kids come to me, what does he mean? How does coming to Jesus like a child help us enter the kingdom? Have you ever been with your children, grandchildren, nieces or nephews, and you're at a place, and when they ask you for something, have you ever noticed that they have no expectation that you can't meet it? Right? I mean, you're at Disney World, and, you know, it's taken nine years of savings to be able to go there, and they want the $18 french fry, and they're like, I love french fries. Can I have french fries? They don't stop and think, does mom and dad have enough resources to financially provide me $18 french fries? No, they just assume what? You have it. When these kids were coming to Jesus, they never thought, well, you know, I'm a Gentile child or I'm a Jewish child or I've been good or I've been bad. They just come to Jesus expecting what? He's able to bless them. And Jesus looks at that moment and he says to his disciples, that's the way you come to me, fully expecting that I can meet your needs. If you were here with us last week, we talked about the fact that the disciples could not heal a demon-possessed boy. Because they were living off their old way, they had not sought God's power through prayer. They had simply said, we, we've healed before, we can heal again. And you have a reoccurring moment here where the children come and Jesus says, very crystal clear in verse 15, I tell you the truth. Now, I want you to notice that's going to come up a few times this morning. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he's destroying a lie by establishing a foundational truth. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you come to me like these kids come to me, fully expecting that I have everything you need, you can't be a part of my kingdom. And this will play out more fully in just a moment. It's a powerful illustration. So to be a part of the kingdom, it isn't what you don't have. It's not a factor. The children had nothing Jesus needed, but because they came to him expecting that he was enough, he could be. Second thing I want to point out as we look at these stories is that it isn't what we do have. Now, what scares me about this particular part of Mark chapter 10 is what a preacher's preacher, Fred Craddock, he passed away this week. He was in his late 80s. He was the kind of preacher you love to listen to, just homespun stories and nailed you with the truth. He said, every now and then you'll present a truth to an audience and they will give you the nod of recognition. What he meant by that was, I'll say, we're going to talk about the Good Samaritan this morning, and you all go, ah, oh, I know that one. And by doing that, lock yourselves away from actually hearing what God might be saying to you fresh and new. Don't do that this morning, okay? Because I'm going to tell you the story about the rich young ruler, but what I want you to catch on, entering in the kingdom of heaven isn't, it isn't what we do have either. The children had nothing, and this young man comes to Jesus, and he brings a lot to the table. Verse 17, as Jesus started on his way from being with the children, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him And loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's a powerful story. Let's just recapitulate it this way. You have this young man, he is everything that you would expect to be to be successful. It's just listed here in Mark's details. First of all, he was rich. That doesn't hurt. He has resources. That means he's been successful in his business life or his parents were successful and he received an inheritance, but he's rich, and there's a lot of possibilities. He was young, and there's an advantage to being young. Now, there's a disadvantage to being young, but not as many disadvantages as it is being old, and I know that because it took me about five minutes to talk my body into getting out of bed today. So I realized when I was young, I just popped up and went to work. And now it's kind of, it takes a negotiation. He's young. He's got his life ahead of him as far as he's assumed. He's successful early. He's got a lot of opportunity to turn that success into something amazing. He was a leader in the community. He was a religious leader. He was humble. Did you notice that Mark doesn't give us a lot of details, but he tells us that the young man came and, and kneeled before Jesus in front of everybody else. He took a posture of humility. He didn't make it about him. He, came, he wanted opportunity with Jesus, so he humbled himself. He was spiritually aware that he had a need. And lastly, he was a moral man. Notice Jesus said to him, what about these of the Ten Commandments? Jesus mentioned a bunch of the Ten Commandments, and the young man said, I've been doing those since I was a child. That's a pretty good statement. But I want you to notice that of the Ten Commandments that Jesus asked him about, he only asked him about the commandments that dealt with how this person interacted with other people. He left out the ones about how this person interacts with God. That was strategic. Jesus knew from the beginning what the issue was. It wasn't that this guy was a moral man. It was that his relationship with God was lacking. And he said in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't inherit something. You don't do anything to inherit it. An inheritance is based on a relationship. I have no anticipation that anybody in this room will leave me in their will. Anything. Anything. If you want to, let's have lunch. I'd love to talk with you about that if you feel so led by the Lord, but I doubt you will. I don't expect any of you to leave me an inheritance. I do expect Dale and Marilyn Christian to, for two reasons. Number one, I'm their son. I'm one of four boys they have. And number two, they told me they're going to. They've already said, when this happens, here's how we want the four of you boys to divide our stuff. So I'm already aware, when that unfortunate day comes, that both my mom and dad are no longer with us. They will give their worldly possessions to us in inheritance. But I have done nothing to earn that. I I had nothing to do with being here to start with. They created me from love. And I'm here by their good graces, and I will be blessed in relationship by their good graces. So when he comes to do this, he says, what must I do? Notice the emphasis is not a bad emphasis. It's just very American. I need Jesus, so what do I have to do to get Jesus? And unlike a child who comes fully expecting Jesus can do what Jesus can do, this guy comes and says, what, what do I add? What do I add? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Which is, seems like a strange uh, side rant. Why? why do you call me good? Because Jesus is trying to find out, do you think I do good things, or do you understand I come from a good God? There's a difference. The identity matters. We talked about this several weeks ago. If you don't know who Jesus is, you can't be a disciple of his because you'll try to make him a disciple of you. You'll try to make him useful instead of your Lord. So he says, why do you call me good? Do you think I do good things or do you know I am the good one? And he's asking him those questions. He says, no one is good except God alone. So do you know that I'm God? in verse 21, I love this. After asking him a series of questions, verse 21 says he loved him. Mark records that. Peter noticed that and probably told Mark about that moment. He said, and when he responded to him, he looked at him with love. I, I want you to hold on to this and cherish this for a moment. On your worst day, God doesn't look at you with disdain. God doesn't hate any of us. On the days that we were most sinful and most against his will. God does not look, on, look down on us like, oh, I can't believe I created them. He loves us. His love is what propels him to tell us the truth even when we don't like it. Jesus loved him even when he wasn't good enough to get to heaven. And then he says to him, one thing you lack. It's easy for us to read that story and think, well, Jesus was correct. He's just being cracked. But put yourself in this moment. I, if you're married right now, I, I want you to imagine you're having this conversation with your spouse. If you're not married, then I want you to think about your best friend in the world who really knows you or your children or, or neighbors and friends, coworkers, someone you really have invested in and they've invested in you. You know that there's a real relationship there. If Heather said to me, if my wife said to me, I love you, but there's one thing that drives me crazy, I don't want to hear the rest of that sentence. Oh, I'm surprised there's only one. But at the end of the day, I, because I know she loves me, I don't want to hear how I'm insufficient. I don't want to hear how I haven't done enough. That, that's troubling. That, that doesn't make me feel good about me. It may be true, but I just don't want to hear it. So put yourself now back in this story. This moral, good, righteous, God-fearing man comes to Jesus and he said, what must I do to have this kingdom you talk about? And Jesus says to him, one thing you lack that stings I'm going to venture to say this man's never heard he lacked anything ever previous to this moment. But he knew in his heart there was something missing. Jesus said, one thing you lack, go sell, go sell everything and give it away to the poor. And Mark records, and his face fell. Often like many of yours do when I talk about money from this place, you're like, oh, man, it's been a good week to skip. Why? Because this is sensitive. I can talk to you about a lot of things, but when I talk to you about your kids and your money, all of a sudden the whole place changes. When we're self-sufficient, when our security is in what we possess, when we can take care of ourselves financially and we don't need others to take care of us, that's a good thing, but it's also a high-risk thing. Let me explain why. Jesus realized that he did great, this young man did great with others, and he was a good, moral, upstanding citizen, but his relationship with God was not connected. So he said, I want you to get rid of your false God, your money, and trust your real God to provide your needs. And that made him sad. That was a big ask, and it was hard to imagine. So it simply says he went away sad because he had great wealth. He walked away from the thing he wanted because he could not give up the thing he had. You see, it's not just what we don't have that makes a difference, it's sometimes what we do have that causes many of us to think we're going to be okay. You see, it isn't what we don't have and it isn't what we do have, listen carefully, the third point this morning is this, it's what we have through him. This is what we've been talking about now for a number of weeks, and it's the gospel message over and over and over Unless you come to Christ needing him for everything, you can't add him into anything. He's not an addition. You don't add him on to the current structure of your life. He restructures everything. And so the challenge here is what we have through him. Look at verses 24 to 27. The disciples were amazed at his words. That's a a huge statement. Remember, Mark is getting these details from the disciples. And they're like, when he told that guy he wasn't a part of the kingdom, we thought, then who is? Think about it. Michael Jordan comes out to your basketball team and your coach looks at him and goes, yeah, he's not good enough for our team. Then most of us would go, then I'm cut right now, aren't I? If that dude doesn't make it, I have no chance of even being a manager. And this is the moment. They were amazed. This guy that you would put up in front of everybody as a moral, righteous, successful man. Listen to me carefully. There are people in your world, and some of us, including myself, have made the mistake of thinking this. Everyone has their own beliefs. Everyone believes in something. And as long as you're true to those beliefs and you do the things that you say you value, at the end of it, it's all going to work out for you because you're a good person. Let me ask you this question What happened to this good man? Jesus said, You lack. It's not about how good we are, it's about how good he is to us. It's the gospel. So they were amazed. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were, what? Even more amazed. They're like, oh my gosh. And they said to each other, who can be saved then? If Michael Jordan got cut, we're all gone. Jesus looked at them and he said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus said, you know, You guys, for a rich person to enter the kingdom is as difficult as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, I have grown up with commentaries and preaching and so forth, and I've even made the mistake myself to say, well, you know, he wasn't really talking like a sewing needle and a real camel. He was talking about this, like, gate that was going into the city. No, he wasn't. He was talking about a sewing needle and a camel, he said it's impossible, not probable, or may not happen often. It's the equivalent. He's audacious. He's making a point to his disciples. They're like, he just cut Michael Jordan. What's the chance for us? And he goes, there's really no chance any of you get into my kingdom. It's like saying, there's a greater chance that you get into my kingdom. or No, there's a greater chance that Mark will have an Afro by next Sunday. Oh, nice. I'll try not to cry right now. You make his point though, right? The odds of me having an Afro by next weekend, pretty slim. He said the chance of a rich person entering into the kingdom of heaven is pretty slim. Why? Because they don't need God. They provide all their own needs. So they only turn to God when they can't get what they want, when they don't have enough control. Jesus is trying to impress upon us the impossibility of this. Because you say, well, yeah, yeah, but if I'm a good person and I still hold my money to myself and I do with it what I want, but I don't hurt anybody with it, as long as I'm not bothering anybody and I contribute occasionally to help people out who might have a need, but as long as it's mine, then aren't I good enough to get in? Remember, it's not what you don't have and it's not what you do have. It's what you have in him. This is the truth of it. Man, this room got quiet. In Jesus' days, the Jews taught that if you had money, it's because God loved you. And if you report, it's because you'd done something wrong and you better figure it out quick. Because God didn't like you so much right now. Jesus dispels all of that. He said, no, it's difficult. I'm going to say a statement, and if you're taking notes, I'd like you to write this down. Wealth is a spiritually dangerous thing. Those aren't my words. Those are not my interpretations. Jesus clearly states it. Wealth is a spiritually dangerous thing. Why? Because it makes you not need God. Now, Here's what I want you to understand. It's not wrong to be wealthy. Please put that out of your mind. This is not a time for those that don't have much to shame those that do. But there's a responsibility with everything God's given us. Now, notice. Jesus came across a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a rich man. Did Jesus tell Nicodemus that his riches were keeping him from the heaven? No. Uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich man. And yet, When Zacchaeus met Jesus, Zacchaeus was the one who came to Jesus and said, you know what, I've used my riches to harm people. I'm gonna give back to them four times the amount I've taken from them. Was that Jesus saying that to him or was that not the conviction of his own heart? Conviction of his own heart. Jesus met rich people all the time and he never mentioned riches. But when he came to this young rich ruler who's unnamed except for his attributes, rich, young, ruler, then what was the deal? Jesus knew where where his... false God was. Jesus knew where he was driving his security. When Jesus said, why don't you give away your riches and come follow me and give it to the poor and come follow me, they had a problem. See, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the apostle Paul tells the early church through a preacher named Timothy, he said, tell them these, those who want to get rich fall into a trap for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, the love of a God who cannot sustain you. And riches are a God to many of us. And I know that there are some in this room that are, are not as wealthy. There are some that are by definition poor. But you have to understand, poor in this country is rich in most every other one. It's just the reality of it. When I've traveled the world and had the fortune to do that, I'll tell you that the poorest people in our country for the most part are some of the richest people in every other nation. It's not how much others have compared to you. It's how much you have in compared to what God's offering you. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What was Adam and Eve's core problem? They wanted to be in control, and they didn't like being told that they couldn't have something. We all struggle with that. We all see things we want. We watch television. We go shopping. We're out in the world. We see new vehicles, and all of a sudden there's something inside of us. We don't always choose it, but there's something inside of us. That, I'd like one of those. I'd like to do that. I'd like to go there. I'd like to have that. And so we live in what we don't have instead of celebrating what we do have. It's hard for all of us. It's a spiritual discipline. And the more we have, the more dangerous it is for us spiritually because we don't want more. We actually want less of God because we don't need God to bring us daily bread. We don't need God to provide for us because we've got that covered. And this is the danger Jesus addresses. So how do you know if your riches have become a false god to you? I'm going to give you the biblical standard. If you want to know Whether or not your money and riches are causing you spiritual danger, I'm going to ask you this question. Are you tithing? Because from the very beginning, the tithe was not a fundraiser for the church. The tithe was the means by which you surrendered your possessions to honor God and trust him. You took your best sheep, your best goats, your best bull. You took all of those and you ended their lives as a sacrifice to God because you said in your heart, I will give up the best of what I have and I will trust that God will provide no matter what I've given away. That God is bigger than my sacrifices. And what is a tithe? It's giving 10%. Now, I want to be really careful on this because there are a lot of people that will push back and I'm not going to argue with you but I want to tell you what I know biblically to be true. The tithe was a minimum 10%. It's where it started. In fact, if you take the sacrifices required by the Jews in the Old Testament and you calculated it, and I've seen this done, it's 26 to 27% of your income was to be given annually to the work of the kingdom that God would grow it. So, if you can't tithe, it may mean that you're being too miserly and you're holding on to a security that is threatening your spiritual heart. Or, you're spending too much money on things you don't need so you can't help others. And both of those are heart conditions. I know this is rough, and I'm being very, very direct. But if we're going to be honest with one another, one of the tests in scripture of whether this spiritually dangerous thing called wealth is in our life is the question can we give 10% to the work of the kingdom? Now, you could give that to the poor, you could give that to organizations that are spreading the gospel, you could give it to your local church. And I'm not even going to get into where it should go because I'm not always sure where it should go. But if you're not giving that 10%, it's because your wealth or your fear of not having enough is causing us to not invest in the kingdom the way God's called us to invest in the kingdom. And we teach that here because it's not only important to grow the kingdom, it's also important for every one of us to grow our own faith. Give away all your money and follow me. Remember, Christianity is never a matter of addition. You don't add Jesus to what you're currently doing. You start completely over. You die to self and walk in newness of life. Verses 28 through 31. Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. Aren't we surprised Peter said that? Peter's like, Lord, we've, we've given everything to follow you. And he's telling the truth. That wasn't a boast. Remember, they just cut Michael Jordan and Peter's like, dude, we've given everything and I'm not even as good as that guy. If he can't get in, how do I get in? And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, remember that phrase? No one who has left house or home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Peter asks a great question. Lord, I've given up a lot for you, and here's what Jesus says. Don't you think for a moment that I ignore that or missed one of those? I have a file in a, in a drawer that Heather and I keep in our office at the house, and it's pictures that the boys have drawn at school, and she's got containers of everything they've ever done or thought, I think. But I've kept a few of those where I want to have them and I've even scanned them and they come up on my, my pictures on my uh, computer. When I scan through pictures, I'll see a picture that one of the boys drew when they were six years old. What I find funny now is that every now and then they'll see that picture and Alex will say to me being 21, Dad, why'd you keep that? i just smile at him to annoy you. Or Brayden will see a picture and i go, Dad, get rid of that. That's so stupid. And I'm like, no, no. I want to hold on to that. I want my boys to understand that I didn't care if that picture was great when they were six. It said, I love you. I want to hold on to that. Jesus says to his disciples, none of you who have ever sacrificed anything. I've never forgotten one moment of that. Don't think that when I ask you to give, to give these things away that I'm going to say, well, good. You never should have had them anyway. He's going to go, no. Everything you sacrifice from family to reputation to power to finances, I won't forget any of that. And it's going to be hard in this life. But one day, all of that is going to be contributed to eternal life, to building the kingdom, so let me ask you the question did your preacher this morning ask you to give away all your money is that the point of this sermon absolutely not I ask you to give away your false gods I ask you to surrender today the things that have replaced your need for God for some of you I'm going to ask you to empty your DVR there's nothing on there that will save your soul the hours you're spending catching up on this season of that or that season of this doesn't matter I can miss Saturday Night Live and still have a life I don't have to know what happened on Sports Center. for some of you it's giving up this push to gain a career to go, go, go to be promoted to go, 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 go to do more when you actually are okay where you're at and you know that it may be giving up your money You have all of this money to come and go and do as you want, but you've never really had to say to Jesus, give us this day our daily bread. I'm not asking you to give away your money. I'm asking you to give away the false gods that will rust and decay and be gone before you ever see its value. To what? To receive back from Christ that which cannot be taken from you. Eternal life, hope, joy, promise, patience. In the next few moments, We're going to sing a number of songs together. And having been here first hour and and sing the song list and participating last hour in praise, I, I want you to be patient. The words we sing, the number of songs we sing, are all a statement for us to profess to one another and to God that we believe that if God asks us to give away everything, we would still inherit everything back. Because it's not what I don't have that matters. And it's not what I do have that matters. It's what I have in Him and who he is and so this morning as we sing as we profess as we confess to one another and as we state as a testimony in this room I invite you to do something I don't invite you to do very often I invite you to testify and sing to profess the words of this music if it fits your heart I'm not asking you to be insincere I'm asking you to process the words of this music and today let us testify in this place if Jesus asks for our false gods today we lay them down We surrender them to have what only he can offer us. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.